These stories were told live on the water cooler stage at the Basement Theatre in Auckland. The theme of the evening was bad jobs, and our four speakers recounted tales of paper runs, lost ships, mermaid dollars, and the consumption of a lot of water. Please note these stories were told live, and the language and themes may not be for everyone. Give a small round of applause for our first speaker, Freya Demaray. All right, so I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a big old lesbian. Um, I thought it was kind of subtle. But, um, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, I get varying responses to being a gay beau. Um, quite often I get the old, good for you, well done, which is, yeah, it's lovely. I, I kind of go, thanks very much, yeah, my... My mum's very proud of me and all the cock I've sacrificed in the name of lesbianism. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously an acquired taste, but... Um, yeah, so uh, about three girlfriends ago, I was going out with Pussy Galore. True story. Um, that's her real name. Uh, and, uh, see, Pussy was amazing, right? This was love at first sight. She was a, a radical, feminist, queer activist, law student, outspoken, outrageous, sex-positive, sex worker, stripper extraordinaire with tits the size of basketballs, and I am Michael Jordan. <laughs> and, yeah, I just, I just thought she was marvellous, right? And so... Yeah, Pussy was a, a, a prostitute, and um, I, one day I was chatting to her, and she was like, babe, do you want to do a job with me? And I was like, yeah, I've got an overdraft. So um, first thing I had to decide was what my hooker name would be, and I chose Dylan. Yeah, um, and so yeah, uh, I decided I was Dylan, and we booked a hotel room, and uh, the John, the John, it's lingo, industry lingo, you guys won't get it. Um, he came in, uh, all five foot three of him, and um, I, I don't know if you can get this from me, just from you brief interaction that we've had, but I'm not a sexy kind of person. And so I kind of like when he came in, I was like, okay, I'm a I'm a prostitute now. <laughs> I better do something sexy. So I I lay on the bed. I'm a Dylan. <sighs> I bet you're excited for all the penis on vagina sexual intercourse that's about to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, not so much sexy as creepy. Um, but, uh, yeah, that obviously worked. <laughs> you get a massive heart on. And, um, yeah, so uh, I then had sex with Pussy as... Lol. Uh, as um, this guy wanted to see two lesbians at it in action. So that was great because, you know... If I'm honest, I was just happy for the opportunity to have sex with my girlfriend. Am I right, lads? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I had sex with Pussy, and that was, that was great. And then um, 
he had sex with pussy and I mean that was fine because like we were like in an open relationship and it was, it was fine okay it was really fine like really honestly it was absolutely fine it was fine okay <laughs> but um yeah no it was uh, it was fun and uh so yeah um he, he he had sex with her and then the thing about this guy um the thing is is that he liked to be weed on So, while he was fucking my girlfriend, I was standing at the side of the bed with a super pump bottle, just like absolutely sculling it back as hard as I could, like like this, while he was fucking my girlfriend. Um, yeah, and so... And that was happening, and I was just filling my bladder to the brim, absolutely prepared. Uh, butch as fuck. It was amazing. And so once that happened, it was time for him to be weed on. <laughs> and it was my time to shine. <laughs> With a golden shower. Now, golden showers, they're quite practical. I always thought you sort of laid a towel down or something, but no, apparently you... Uh, what actually happened with this situation was uh, he laid down in the bathtub and I put my leg up on the side of the bath and weed on his chest which is quite a I mean it's not the most glamorous position for a woman to be in is it really but um, yeah so I peed on him and I peed on him five times and it was $50 a pop um, so I made $250 and um, plus the money that I made from having sex with my girlfriend and I made $1,500 in one night and I paid off my overdraft yeah thank you, single clap cheers um, and you know that was great and I haven't done it again and I don't think I'll do it again. I mean, at least I go into overdraft again. But, guys, I, I kind of feel like, and I feel like I can talk to you guys about this, um, I kind of feel like the trauma of it does live on. Um, it lives with me every day. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's because every time I go to the toilet now... I think that's fifty dollars I just pissed down the drain. <laughs> Thank you, I'm Freya Demaray. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, Freya Demaray. We have a round of applause for David Parker. So I got this job at a shop. I wanted something part-time and stress-free. And for a while it was, but pretty quickly it became full-time. And I started to notice that there were some issues with how the shop was being run and the staff were being treated. Plus the pay was horribly low. But none of those things even made my top ten list of reasons why I'd hate being in the shop. My favourite days were when I got to work with my selection of favourite staff. There were Tuesdays with Dave uh, or 
over school holidays when some of the weekend staff would pick up a few extra hours. Um, there's sales reps from wholesalers that I'd see once a month that I'm still good friends with. Ben's here tonight. Hi, Ben. Um, eight years later. Um, thanks for coming anyway. Um, maybe with the right selection of staff and like the right people around me, I'd have never left, but you don't get to choose who you work with. Just when I was settled and I'd found my place at work, Craig started work. Craig and I were very different people. I like watching Gilmore Girls and uh, making gingerbread houses. And at the time, I was probably listening exclusively to music that I'd refer to as indie music. <laughs> Craig liked Avenged Sevenfold. He liked Avenged Sevenfold so much that he had their signatures tattooed on his arm. For those of you who don't know who Avenged Sevenfold are, they're a band and their members have names like Sinister Gates, <laughs> Zacky Vengeance, and M Shadows. Craig liked Avenged Sevenfold so much that when they were in Auckland, he took five days off work to try and follow them around so that he could show them his tattoos. Apparently, when he did find them and show them, they were stoked, as I'm sure I would be if someone had a tattoo of my name on their arm. <laughs> I dreaded Mondays. That was the only day a week when it was just Craig and I. We barely spoke, but when he did, he constantly talked down to me. When he was telling me how to do my job, my one petty solace was that I consistently outsold him every month. <laughs> it was around this time I started to feel a little bit out of place with some of the other staff, in particular the two managers of the shop. Most of the time they were great, but they I couldn't remember a single conversation with them that didn't involve sex or the general degradation of women. Andrew was the manager in charge of my side of the shop. He was the kind of guy that if I was talking to an attractive woman, he'd wink at me and lick his lips suggestively behind her back. <laughs> a lot of the time his jokes were in good humour, but I'd often be left feeling uncomfortable. There was an old wooden desk in the dark room behind the counter, and it was full of Andrew's stuff. You know, just regular stuff that you'd leave at work, like a deck of cards, a clean shirt, some condoms, and a large stack of foreign currency. <laughs> Foreign to me, anyway. It was mermaid's dollars. When I tried to tell him I'd never been to a strip club and had no intention of ever going to one, his immediate reaction was, when's your birthday? Uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to go to a strip club, thanks. Dave, when's your birthday? Um, next year? Oh, shit, that's no good. Um, this Friday, we're going to a strip club. I, I, I really don't want to go to a strip club, thanks. But Dave, at a strip club, you get to do this. He called over Craig, who'd been very enthusiastic about a strip club outing. He got Craig to act as a stripper, and having removed the mermaid's dollars from his desk drawer, proceeded to rub them over Craig while he gyrated round an imaginary pole. It wasn't pretty. I laughed it off and left to another part of the store. This became a, 
a continual routine of mine. <laughs> After a year that I'd been working there, the two managers kind of left on somewhat bad terms. They'd been running a hire company using stock from the shop that they'd bought. They'd even been employing me and a few other members of staff. And to me, it all seemed above board, but when upper management found out, they weren't happy. Eventually, the two managers got called to a meeting at head office, and that day I got a call from Andrew late in the evening telling me that they'd quit. They were starting a competing store, and could I get the contents of his desk and bring them down the road to meet him? I thought he was overreacting because surely they'd let him back in the shop just to grab his stuff, but a few minutes later I had a call from Dan. He was the retail manager for all of the country and he told me that I wasn't allowed to talk to them and I wasn't allowed to let them back in the shop. Shadily that evening, I met Andrew after work. <laughs> we met in the car park by an Esquire's coffee shop. <laughs> I'd stuffed all the contents of his drawers into a plastic bag from our shop including, of course, the mermaid's dollars. He'd asked for them specifically. I wasn't sure, because I hadn't counted, how much of the aquatic currency I had, but it must have been almost a few hundred dollars. I really wasn't sure why he wanted it, though, because a few months earlier he'd taken an Australian rep out on the town, and the day after he came into work and... He proudly told me how they'd been banned from mermaids and how it's, it's quite a feat to get banned from mermaids. <laughs> I wasn't sure what good the money would be to him now, but as anyone who's ever lost their drinks tokens at a music festival will tell you, that's where they make their profits. By that point, I'd lost all patience with Craig. We were at an all-out passive-aggressive war. It was getting petty. I was sick of him constantly changing the desktop backgrounds at work to fake inspirational posters that he thought were funny. So I took a photo of him from his celebrity-stalking MySpace page. He had a whole separate page for his photos with him and celebrities that he'd bumped into or met at outside their hotels. There are actually a lot of photos to choose from. I looked at it today, and it's kind of scary. Um, I wasn't sure whether to be impressed or concerned. But I took a photo of him, and he was stood with a bearded man who looked particularly unimpressed outside a hotel, and I added the caption, Celebrity Stalkers, don't you love it when a superfan shows up outside your hotel? I changed all the desktop backgrounds at work to be that photo. <laughs> the next day when I came in, they'd all been changed. Before the shop doors had even opened, Craig didn't say anything. So I changed them back. <laughs> 20 minutes later, they were all gone again. Craig still hadn't said anything. I thought he'd see the funny side, but he was being a bad sport. And ashamedly, so was I. I changed them again. <laughs> I still think this is a funny joke, but when Craig found it the third time, he looked up at me, and I knew I'd pushed enough. <laughs> After the two managers had quit, uh, all of their managerial roles kind of got split between the staff that worked there. And seeing as we'd scraped by for so, f for so long, um, a new manager was never employed. 
Um, instead, Dan, the retail manager for all of the stores, moved his office in upstairs and continued to ignore us. I'd only met Dan a few times before. One of the occasions was at an annual manager's meeting. All the managers from all the shops in the country had come up to have a meeting about our shop. Um, and Dan was going to take them out for dinner that evening. They'd stayed late, and so I had to hang around to close up the shop. When they finished, he invited me along for the dinner. I jumped at the chance. I thought this was karma. I was going to eat the pay rise I was due, or at least drink it. We were going to some expensive restaurant. I can't remember the name, but it was one by the Sky Tower, and it was exactly the sort of restaurant that you'd take businessmen for a business meal. When we arrived, Dan took a look inside and said, oh, it's too busy. I gave him a long list of recommendations, but the only viable option, according to him, was Denny's. Greg, one of my two managers at the time, was furious, as was I. I wanted to get business drunk on expensive wines and, and eat quail or venison or whatever it is you eat at a dinner for businessmen. I'm still not sure. Instead, we were going to Denny's. I could order curly fries at Denny's. And while I'd happily eat curly fries a bit drunk late at night, maybe on my birthday at Denny's, this just wasn't the right occasion. Greg and I got a beer at Denny's. Probably the only time in my life that I'll ever go to Denny's for a beer. And, well, hopefully the only time in my life that I'll go to Denny's for a beer. We drank our beers quickly and made an excuse and left what would undoubtedly be a miserable and awkward dinner. I don't really have time to talk about Joe in as much detail as I'd like, but I'll say this. I liked Joe. He worked at one of the other shops. We were about the same age, and we got on well. Joe quit the shop and started working for a competing brand, and that was fine. I saw him a few months later. He was doing really well. He had a hire company similar to my manager's, uh, and when I saw him, he'd got so much gear. He was doing really well for himself, a big list of clients. I think nowadays, though, he's under house arrest still. Um, it wasn't long after I saw him that there was an article in Stuff that got sent around the shops, and I've got an excerpt to read from it. Joe appeared in court last month facing 12 counts of theft from his employer between June 2008 and February this year. It was 2009. More than 1,000 items of equipment with an estimated value of more than $300,000 were recovered in Auckland, New Plymouth, and Nelson, according to court documents. I never saw Joe again. <laughs> At some point, the recession hit, and my job changed from helping people find the things that they needed to just find someone and sell them something. <laughs> Dan was understandably stressed by this point, and he'd occasionally just yell across the shop, sell some things, boys. <laughs> the shop was empty. <laughs> there was a Christmas party that I avoided towards the end of my time at work. There was no one I could bear to make small talk with anymore. Well, no one that was going. We'd all made our excuses. 
The next day, Dan came into work an hour late and reeking of alcohol. He walked in with a bag of pies, sausage rolls and chocolate bars. I didn't really want one of the sausage rolls or the pies or even the chocolate bars, but he forced a sausage roll into my hand when I tried to say no. He demanded that we eat them in front of him. <laughs> he was still very drunk. <laughs> After a few bites, he went upstairs to his office. But he returned about ten minutes later with the yellow pages. He slammed it down in front of me and he told me to start calling. <laughs> Who? Everyone. <laughs> Start at the A's, finish at the, at the Z's, call people and sell things. I told him I wasn't going to do it. He got angry and he left saying something like, I'll be back in ten minutes and you better be calling. We didn't see him for the rest of the day. He was asleep in his office. I tried to call the owners of the company, but... They weren't at work that day. They'd drunk a little bit too much the night before. We didn't know what to do at all, so eventually he left with a headache. I could go on and on with stories like this. There's people I haven't mentioned, like Smelly Jeff or <laughs> Ivan, who told me my Christmas hat was gay and then asked me if I wanted to fight. <laughs> or the hours on the phone with boring Neil... Or the manager who gave me a lift home, but not before stopping and calling a sex worker over to my car window just to watch 19-year-old me squirm. I think you get the point. After two years, my patience had worn thin. I was busy with recording and producing, and I thought I'd see if I could give being an engineer full-time a shot. After five years of self-employment, I still had the occasional nightmare that I had to go back to the shop. Thank you very much. David Parker, ladies and gentlemen. Terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Crawley. So, like most people, I have a, um, a dark history in my history of employment. And I'm going to stretch back all the way to 1983, when I was three years old, three and a half, my dad tells me. I was sucked into working voluntarily for New Zealand couriers. Now, my dad's job was the courier. He was the paid courier. I was the assistant courier on a voluntary basis. His job was to drive the van around to the various factories and... Um, I don't know, all I can remember is concrete car park style buildings. And my job was to be the cute, smiling child who leapt out of the van, ran up um, to the adult, uh, the various adults who are probably mostly now long dead, um, <laughs> and hand them the package, jump in the van, and away we go. It was great to spend some time with my dad. It wasn't a bad job, but I guess I include it in the list here because it was uh, voluntary and, you know... I've had a few of those jobs where I've sucked into working for free. And um, anyway, so they say that when you are uh, when you wanting to know something about a person, you look back at their childhood, and you can see little clues. And you go, okay, I can see where this person, where this all started. And uh, ten years old, um, 
I was accepted as um, to join the team at uh, the Western Leaders Delivery Department. So <laughs> I was um, it was pretty cool. And I found out earlier actually, Joseph used to deliver the same paper, same age. So we were very similar. Um, Christchurch Star, probably same company. <laughs> anyway, I had the BMX, I had the courage, I had the job. I was ten years old. Um, now, what would happen is I'd come home Tuesday, Thursday from school, and um, I'd find these stacks of uh, newspapers at the foot of the stairs that led up to the dark green door at 21 Poinsettia Place, Henderson. And uh, I, I'd run through the door, hi, Mum, hi, whoever was home, I can't remember um, whether my mum had a job, I think she might have eventually had a job. But anyway, point is. I dash into the kitchen, fill up my Garfield mug with some pineapple raro, um, pineapple and mango if there was no pineapple, straight pineapple, and um, <laughs> smear a whole lot of Vegemite all over those stale cruskets out of the Tupperware container that had been left partially open in the pantry and suck them down and uh, grab a pair of snips without even asking a grown-up and um, run out to the driveway, unsnip the stacks of... Uh, the big, massive stack, stacks of Western leaders and um, saddle up onto my little blue BMX and um, start trying to stuff those papers in there into um, the saddle that I could never quite figure out quite how to put it on my bike without them all falling out everywhere um, constantly, which, yeah, so I mean, sometimes, you know, I would get as only as far as Mrs. Verko's house, which, as you know, was only a few doors down, and... <laughs> They'd all spill out onto the ground and I'd wind up... You know, there's a certain sort of feeling that comes with, like, a fucking failure like that where you just... It's out of your control, apart from you didn't really pack them right. And they just... The way that it was built, like, the saddle thing, was like you had to kind of cycle without knocking your knees into this sort of full, swollen saddle of information and um, without... Because you'd knock them too much and they'd bang together and then they'd hit the tyre and then, like, boom! flip out and so you find myself kind of standing outside um you know Jean from next door's place or um, whoever and just and stuff them all into the bags and then kind of get back on and, and carry on riding and all red-faced and teary-eyed I kind of you know but I was determined so I would go and deliver them to Jean next door deliver them to the Mrs. Verco deliver them to my papa deliver, deliver them to the Edwards family deliver them to um the Maori family on the Road, and there was one, and the Chinese family, there was one in the 80s. Um, and the very, 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 very obese elderly woman who lived um, in the top floor of the flat with her husband and their very mysterious gothic uh, daughter who had a red VW. Um, and uh, my papa lived on the road. Anyways, it was a short cul de sac. Um, and that's not really where the story really kicks off. The, um, <laughs> the cul-de-sac was off Lincoln Road. The cul-de-sac was the, um, really the springboard for this epic tale. And um, so what would happen was I'd get to the end of the cul-de-sac and I would quickly take care of the, um, the, the scattered housings along this side of Lincoln Road. Now, Lincoln Road, uh, the 1980s and the early 90s were very kind to Lincoln Road. Now, when we moved in... Um, when I was just a little boy, it was full of these family orchards that had been there for decades. Boring. It was like, you know, you'd drive along, there'd be nothing but just beautiful lush trees and um, dark green bush and 
with the exception of the Bible College of New Zealand, where I grew up. Shout out to Bible College of New Zealand, where my dad still works today. Now called Laidlaw College, but it's my speech, not his. Um, um, speech. It is a speech. I've written it out. It's a speech. Okay, so they would start. So now the trees and um, you know the various family orchards started to make way for things like Pizza Hut, awesome. You know, Tempin Bowling across the road, real close. Um, you know, it's actually where I went when I first ran away from home. Uh, bought a pixie caramel, came home ten minutes later. Mother in tears. Nah, actually my sister was in tears. She was really worried, but my mum knew what was happening. Um, <laughs> Um, anyway, so then I would cross at the lights, of course, um, over to the other side of Lincoln Road, take care of Bob College of New Zealand, um, and then down along to <laughs> bedpost. Yeah, I thought you were going to guess. Um, <laughs> to bedpost. Um, now, the dudes who worked at bedpost um, were there was. Bedpost was uh, Bedpost Lincoln Road was staffed by two guys who resembled uncannily Thompson and Thompson from um, Tintin. Balder than me, moustaches, you know, but they were the kind of suburban Henderson version of Thompson and Thompson, and a slightly younger blonde woman who I imagine kept them in a fairly desperate state of vying for her attention and making surreptitious promises to leave their wives and trying and not trying to and trying not to make jokes about her and the new bed that was coming in, you know, various things. That's how I pictured it anyway, looking back. But at the time, it was perfectly innocent. I'd take my Western leader in there and they were, no one was ever in there. It was They were at the other end of the big, big, big shop, got a room for all the beds. Um, and, you know, smiling kindly, they'd say, ah, oh, thanks. Young man, awesome, thank you. And uh, I was just super cool to get that affirmation, um, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh, didn't have much to do with the woman. The guys were really nice. Um, but uh, anyway, so Bedpost uh, stayed uh, Bedpost um, stayed in my memory for, for some time. And I still think of it fondly um, on the delivery run there. A uh, couple of boring places to deliver to. Telecom next door. Uh, there's Lincoln Road office. Boring. Um, there's some other places and um, for some reason I don't think we ever delivered to Pizza Hut uh, maybe they didn't want I don't know anyway I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting just, just sidetracked um, as, a, as a actually as a side note years later in uh, 1996 my uh, grunge high school grunge band we were on a little um, protest march from Waitakere College down to Teapai Park we were protesting in um in what is it? Solidarity with um, Chris Carter, who was pushing for um, better pay for teachers, and uh, so yeah, it's a pretty cool thing that I did. We took my uh, <laughs> band down to Teapot Park, and um, I went into Bedpost and uh, asked them. Same guys. I don't know if they remember me, but probably they did. And um, <laughs> because they let us use their power, and we plugged in a PA and played a little protest set uh, at Teapot Park. <laughs> with a song called Pay the Teachers More that we've written. <laughs> and uh, beautiful serendipity ended up on page three of The Western Leader, which I used to deliver. <laughs> now, you're getting ahead of yourselves. Rewind, rewind. 
back to 1990, there's one place left on the map, as you know. The car yard on Lincoln Road. There was only one there back then that I can remember in my square mile. And um, anyway, so I'd go in there and deliver, and boy... Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, there's this lady there behind the counter reception, and I felt just embarrassed to say this because my girlfriend's here, but at 10 years old, I had a big crush on her. I was tumbling directly into my debut in the Broadway production of Unrequited Love. <laughs> and um, I'd go in there, gingerly place the uh, Western leader on the, um, on the uh, counter, and uh, her with her glowing ginger ringlets and uh, just late 80s, early 90s top. And uh, <laughs> boy, did she look good. And I, um, so, and I'd wait around for a smile or a thank you. And I sort of felt like, you know, there was enough uh, going on there that, you know, maybe, I don't know what, it was, what I was thinking. Man. What was it? What was it? What was I thinking? Delivering a paper being a cripplingly shy 10-year-old. I can't tell you there was much interpersonal interaction going down, but uh, holding on to the dream, one day she might feel the same. Sadly, (coughs) it was never meant to be. All those months spent uh, daydreaming. Like, daydreaming is putting it lightly. I was really, really, really just trying to work out a way that I could figure out a way, a deal with God or something... Or I could turn invisible and just go around the back of the counter, kiss her or something. I don't know what I was trying to do when I was 10 years old, but she just just wanted, she just needed to know. I just wanted to kiss her on the face. But as those feelings started to dissipate, and don't worry, Sarah, they have. Um, um, as those feelings started to dissipate, I... Um, I started to get a new obsession, a new and dangerous obsession. (laughs) And that was this box of lollies that was sitting on the counter. Um, I started to kind of pay little attention to her. In fact, as I remember it, you know, I started to go in and, and what I wanted was for her to turn her back and for me to be able to, in my dreams, reach out and grab one of these lollies that I knew in my heart were not for me. They were for paying customers. <laughs> Adults with driver's licences. You know, at least $100 to spend on a car, whatever it was. I knew they weren't for me, but every now and again, so what would happen is, just pretend this is the Western leader, it's probably about, got a, probably about as much information as a Western leader in it. Um, less ads. Um, and um, I'd put the wait until she kind of wasn't really watching and then I'd kind of put the thing down gently and then I would kind of put my hand across just the last minute like I was a good kid apart from having obviously kind of obviously weird pseudo invisibility inappropriate touching daydreams but (laughs) apart from that I was a really good kid and um, that was just an innocent obsession Um, but I would reach my hand out for these lollies and I would just at the last minute no I can't do it no, I can't do it. I was the kind of kid who took the video back when it, <laughs> to the video shop in Henderson. If, it was, if I watched it and it was too rude, I'd stop it and I'd take it back and complain to the management that they had... That, 
hired it out to me. <laughs> I don't know, sometimes people change. Um, anyway, so I would wait and I would, one, one day, so finally one day I reached out and I, uh, I uh, on the last day before, I, the last day of my delivery job, I reached out and I, I, I took one. I took one. I reached into that open casket, selected a, uh, you know, selected a gelatinous blob and left, jumped on my now unladen BMX and screamed home and I was so overwhelmed with shame, I can't even tell you. It was, um, anyway, um, I would never again darken the door of the car yard or bedpost apart from that incident later on. Anyway, that's the first part over. Anyway, um, my BMX got stolen and um, I didn't have a bike anymore so I thought that was it for me forever, job-wise. And um, <laughs> later on, thankfully, um, my mother had become a counsellor by that point and she was working for Auckland City Council and was just travelling around to the libraries. She got me a job as a shelver at Henderson Library and the place was just a buzz with information. I'd Learn, you know, I would hire out teenage fan club tapes and, like, you know, David Bowie tapes and read Madeline Lee Engle novels. And uh, I was, you know, it was a great time for me. So that doesn't really get a look in in this speech because it was, uh, but I had to mention it because it was on the path. But it was a good time, a good job. And uh, so it does unfortunately get no prominence in this directory of disasters. Uh, what happened next? I was in high school, had my band. Uh, I was at my third high school by this point, Waitakere College, and I had my band called Fairy. My um, uh, pump, Pumpkins co- Nirvana Cross covers band and a few originals. Um, playing some pretty cool gigs by 1996, actually. We, probably the best one was the Bedpost gig, but probably, you know, <laughs> but we did... We were up there. We, like I said, we made the papers. And um, one day, uh, 95... 95 BFM, I should mention once upon a time I was a smart kid and gradually my love for music and things started to take over and, I, and you know there's nothing not smart about music but I just wasn't so interested in algebra anymore mum and um, so BFM BFM, you guys know BFM? Radio station? Um, came to came to town, came to Henderson and they brought with them a band called Nothing At All who um, went on to become the D4 when the singer of Nothing At All died, unfortunately. Um, but we caught them at the, at the school, and they brought another band called Nanoxinal Nine, who freaked the shit out of me. They were great. Um, and my life was never the same. I swiftly applied for a volunteer role at BFM and quit school just before I finished sixth form, um, which was year... Any people? No, no, none of you probably know about years either. Um, so just about year 12, thank you. Thank you. Um, just about finished uh, six form, and I quit to go and volunteer at BFM, uh, a decision which has both plagued me and like, impressed me quietly um, ever since. <laughs> but, you know, man cannot live on rock and roll alone, <laughs> except for some people. The Finns, Dobbin. Where was I going with this? I had to get a job. I had to get a goddamn job to. Um, I had to get a job to um, pay my bills, dollar bills. You know, I was doing graveyard shifts at BFM, and 
I was like, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to get the money for the bus back to Henderson or and back? And um, so, what does a boy do? What does a cool guy like me do? Cool guy like me meets this person who is the little sister of the singer from ITV slash the Nixons, <laughs> Tatiana, and she gave me a job at Georgie Pie Finance Plaza in the city, <laughs> full time. So. Yeah, I uh, was working full-time at Georgie Pie. Uh, it was a six-month tenure. Maroon bow tie, matching hat, skin-destroying dishwashing chemicals, and a distracting and obvious sexual tension between Kirsty, the feisty Kirsty manager of Georgie Pie Finance Plaza 1996, and stupid Dan, uptight Dan from McDonald's next door. There was a McDonald's... <laughs> And a Georgie Pie, and there was this tension. You could cut it with a uh, McKnife. And um, she wanted his nuggets, and he wanted her, I guess, pies. <laughs> Boobs. Boob pies. So, yeah, it was all good. So I spent most of my time in the big walk-in freezer, <laughs> filling my face from the plastic sack of Gold Rush nuggets that were sitting in the freezer. You guys ever have a Gold Rush Sunday? No, you didn't, because they ate all the nuggets. Uh, um, anyway, it was hard. It was hard. Those were hard months. I've written this like a novel. Those were hard months, but I lived them, and I still have the bow tie and a Polaroid to prove it. I was 16. Now, you guys can judge all you like, but Georgie Pye did not take the rock and roll out of me. No, sir. I wanted, I wanted so badly. I wanted to, so badly to go to Parachute Festival. Yeah. <laughs> 1997. So I was just like, flip it. Flip it. Who gives a heck? I'm going. So I went up to Ken, who was our new manager. I have no idea where Kirsty was by this point. I think that her and Dan had like reached this fever pitch. and were, There was this really... Ill-advised, ill-fated, unpopular to the point of closing down very quickly but never got shut down, never got taken away. Rugby museum up in the finance plaza. That was the third point of the triangle of awesome up there we dealt with. But anyway, I think those two were in this sort of like trapped in this kind of, kind of nearly sex vortex, like going around in this weird kind of wash cycle in there backstage somewhere. But we've got a new manager called Ken. Some people you describe as firm but fair. Ken was meek and a dick. <laughs> he was too old for that job. He's probably still there. It's not even open anymore. <laughs> but I went up to Ken and I said, Ken knocked on the office door of his broom closet where he sat and um, <laughs> Ken, is it I want to ask you something. Is it all right if I take one weekend, one solitary weekend, to go to Parachute Festival, the Christian music festival, <laughs> to hang out with my friends, all my cool friends, and watch bands in the twilight period of my Christianity? Not that I know that yet, but <laughs> what wound up being that? <clears throat> and he said, no. What a dick. What a meek little dick. Jeffrey could have covered my shifts. Mangus could have covered my shifts. <laughs> he could have even covered my shifts himself. But no. It was so quiet at the Georgie Pie. Oh, 
It was the lamest thing. It was the lamest job ever. But, and it also, is, yeah, anyways, don't worry about it. Yeah, I got out of there. I quit. I fucking quit <laughs> to go to Parachute. And as a side note, one of my favourite bands at the time was called Krusty, and they hit single that I got on BFM because I was still on BFM. And a Christian. <laughs> Getting in there and changing the world, like, without telling anyone. <sighs> I got Krusty's single, um, Georgie Pie, on the radio. And it was uh, one of the lines was um, it was all about there's no seventy five cent pie because you know and it was like starts off with this sound um, sample of going to the drive through it was probably Joseph um, <laughs> going hello can I please have one seventy five cent pie please and then the woman goes I'm sorry all the pies are a dollar and then he's like no nah! and then the song starts and um, <laughs> all about inflation and stuff anyway so that's it's an epic. <laughs> Epic song. You can look it up on myspace.com or Friendster or something. It's probably still there. Um, or on tape, probably more likely. Um, anyway, so I went and had a very powerful time at Parachute, especially just, I remember to this day, standing up on the hill, looking down while Krusty played that song and just screaming the lyrics out like, yeah, that was so cool. And um, spent the next three or four months unemployed, uh, back at my parents' place and just masturbating and eating increasingly large white bread sandwiches <laughs> with less and less in them. They were just... <laughs> just, yeah, like, kind of ended up like loaf, margarine loaf <laughs> special, um, sometimes with one tomato spread across the... the anyway, um, one day I, you know, like one day I folded and I finally... I was like, I need a job. I need a job. I got a, and so I got a job at a Christian bookshop in Green Lane. Um, anyone else here? Anyone been to that Christian bookshop out in Green Lane? Here? Yeah, I went there to visit you. You did come to visit me, Mikey. I was, I've just, anyone else? <laughs> Storehouse, it was called. Storehouse Christian Bookshop and Music Shop. There was a little bit of music there, which was my saving grace, really. Um, God was my saving grace, of course. But um, the music was... <laughs> second in my life. Uh, my job title was inventory manager. I was only 17. I walked straight into that job. I didn't have to rise up the ranks. I was inventory manager. Okay. Um, <laughs> thought that was going to get a, um Applause. But um, no, that's cool. Or even like a really impressed sound. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what is an inventory manager at the Stillhouse Christian Bookshop? It's unpacking boxes of books um, and sometimes music, and sometimes rulers with <laughs> Jesus things on them. And, <laughs> and you tap that shit into the computer and match it up to the invoice, um, the purchase order, and um, that's about it, really, I suppose. Um, now, I was working under the watchful eye of Uncle Brian, who looked a lot... A lot like Mark Lundy, <laughs> who, you know, at the time I had no idea who Mark Lundy was, but I had Uncle Brian, so it didn't matter. Uncle Brian, and if you were close to Uncle Brian, which I was, you called him Uncle Bry. So, which, I should rephrase that, you had to call him Uncle Bry. You had to call him Uncle Bry. And he had this catchphrase, <laughs> which was, How the heck are you? <laughs> which. It echoes in my head to this day. Um, and every time I hear it in my head, I just feel that same fear. He was a terrifying character. He was a total dick. 
Um, and I'm aware that I'm rambling on. So I'll, I'll just breeze over there. Suffice to say, and I think you'll understand what I, what I mean when I started to get a real case of the uh, Mark chapter 11 verses 15 to 19. <laughs> Verses 15 to 19, a real case of Mark chap- chapter 11, verse 15 to 19, which, if you need a quick refresher, is the bit where, and this is the bit that kind of I still think is pretty cool, is where Jesus has been on holiday or in another town or something, and he goes to the temple, and he walks in, and there's people selling things in the temple, selling presumably rulers with what would <laughs> probably just write what would God do because they didn't know about him, Jesus, just yet. But like or rubbers and stuff, you know, inspirational God loves me kind of shit. That kind of, you know, there was just, it was paraphernalia, whatever it was, I think pigeons maybe even. But anyway, Christian pigeons probably. Um, any, um, Jesus goes in there and he essentially, in whatever words he uses, I cannot remember, but they're in there. He goes in there with this big stick, apparently, and just knocks over the tables, and he's like, get out of here. This is, this is fucked, essentially. Um, get out of here. You guys are uh, sullying the good uh, purposes of this temple. You know? What are you doing here? So I started to get a case of the old Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19s. So I was like, I don't know if this is actually kind of right, what we're doing. Yeah, I think we might be, this might be a little ironic that we're selling what would Jesus do bracelets Whereas what would Jesus do is come in here with a big stick and smash <laughs> the whole thing up. I wish I could tell you that's why I left, that I had made one single morally based decision in my life. <clears throat> I just got a more interesting job. Um, but when I left, uh, I got this really, really cool present for leaving. I, it was a, snow, a, a red towel with Snow White on it. Um, <laughs> Kissing Prince Charming. It just said Snow White. Yeah, with a picture of... That was my present. I was a 17-year-old, grunge-loving, long-haired dude. With, clearly with a penchant written all over my face for ironic towels. Where did I go next? This is the last bit of the story, in case anyone's worrying about time. I'm almost done. I'm worrying about time, too. I've got to go back to work after this, as I said. But... Uh, I, uh, I wasn't wavering with my doubts. That's not why I left, but I became a TV presenter on a show called Jovial Strove. Who's heard of it? <laughs> I was 18 years old. I packed a bag and I moved to Snell's Beach, which at the time was not cool. It was not uh, developed at all, and I went and worked at this place called Family Television Network. <laughs> Who's heard of it? <laughs> Walkworth was occasionally serviced by the signal. Um, <laughs> this was pre-internet as well, and so Snell's Beach was it was coming on strong in Snell's Beach. Don't worry. Um, and so I got this sweet deal. I was living on the beach, hello, for $15 a week in a renovated, not actually renovated, just didn't have water in it anymore, water <laughs> container, um, concrete water bunker that had a, a door cut in it. And um, uh, so I was sleeping in a single bed there. Um, 
And my flatmates were this guy called Mark who had this scraggly beard and like was one of those guys who was like, you go, how you doing, Mark? He's like, ooh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Which I think I actually have become one of those people. But um, <laughs> since, but Mark was, you know, his, all I remember really about Mark was that he smoked like crazy, drank a lot of coffee and his piss stank. When uh, he, which he'd leave in the toilet. That's what I remember about Mark. He was a cool, you know, cool guy. Um, and this guy called Phil, who had this really cool van, and uh, still Facebook friends with Phil. We have he's the one who always speaks up and goes uh, speaks up against my left wing posts, and um, <laughs> we have these hilarious arguments. And lastly, there was this guy called Dave, and Dave would let me use his computer to play like nerdy. Um, these guys all worked at the family television thing, and Dave would let me use his computer to, like, play. What do you call it? Like, I don't know. I can't remember the name of the game, but it was like, you know, essentially all games are the same. But it was go around fighting, um, <laughs> and upgrading things. And um, uh, I would also kind of... Eventually I started to realise that David's computer was riddled with torture porn as well. Uh, which, if you knew the woman that he was about to marry, was just strange. It was like you just had to... Ended up having to just... When you saw the two of them together, just be like... OK, you, she is so annoying. That is kind of what you would probably want to do to her. But, like, she... But you just thought... Ugh. You know. Anyway, so that's so the TV to TV show. We were about to wrap up here. This TV show, Jovial Strobe, that I was working. We, what happened was we would travel around this massive van, around the country, with this couch in the back, um, and we would go to like Fuktane or um, or Tauranga or um, you know Hamilton or Huntley or uh, Tokaroa or you know wherever, man. <laughs> Um, Auckland and um, we had this magical time travelling kind of jumping around the place couch where you'd go and the three of us presenters would appear on it by miracle and we'd be like whoa where are we today we're going to go like check out what's happening at Fokotane and Pakistan of Car Park whoa <laughs> and um, and hang out it was a, and the show in itself was fun you know it was a bit of fun it was harmless there was no like you know it was yes it was for a Christian TV station but there was no like at the end of it, like, message or anything. It was, like, just positive, you know, youth show with a few gags chucked in there and a um, few cool graphics and stuff. We worked on this for ages, maybe two dozen episodes we just about finished when Ron came in. Ron was the station manager. He was another meek dick um, uh, with really stupid hair. Um, he came in and told us that we'd run out of money um, to make the show, which was kind of weird because we were all working for absolutely no money um, for free and using recycled tapes and you know borrowing things to make it. We'd run out of money to make the show, so we had to quickly just dub over all the all the work you've done. Quick, dub over it with like new stuff and things. So uh, there's no <laughs> record that I ever did that, which is uh, um, amazing, isn't it? Um, for a year at least of my life, um, we were almost finished too. But anyway, hey. Get up and start again, right? So what we did was we all got new jobs. And that is cool, getting a new job. You know, change is good as a holiday. And my job was called transmission operator. Anyone done transmission operating before? It's where they put you in a room for 14 hours that doesn't have any windows. And your job is to 
watch and record all the things coming in from overseas feeds on all the different channels and like record them onto tapes, watch them and censor anything that was remotely, you know, like questionable language or questionably moral, like morally questionable or remember this was family television network. So and um what I would do is I'd write all the time codes down. My job was, you know, to do this and I would take those time codes with the tapes and I'd go and sit in with Dave, my flatmate who lent me the computer, and we would get rid of these offending articles from these tapes. Um, irony is now not lost on me. Um, Dave, Dave and I sitting there kind of making everything right on the tapes. Um, and uh, one day I just thought, this is really weird. And the place was run by what was essentially a cult leader called Trevi Axley, <laughs> who... Uh, Claimed that he'd made his millions by inventing bubble wrap. So that was the kind of <laughs> claim that this guy made. He also made claims like when I said to Ron, Ron, I think after two years at least of this, I think I need to go and be with my family and my friends again, if that's okay. Maybe do something else. I hate it. <laughs> I didn't say I hate it. I was thinking, I was really polite. I, and Ron said, oh, well, okay, well, you know, well, talk to Trevor about it, and Trevor walked past, and um, Trevor, he said to Trevor, Trevor, uh, he's thinking about leaving. Um, and Trevor looked at me and goes, no, no. God wants you to stay. Stay for, just God wants you to stay for another two years. That's all. Just give us that. Just give, God wants you, just, He's saying two years. And um, I really felt like being like, oh, what are you, has, just, has God told you what my name is, Trevor? Do you know my name? Um, but no, I mean, he bypassed that useless information and went straight to the source. God wants me, whoever I am, to stay for another two years. So I said, okay. And I said, all right, I'll give you that. And I promptly went home uh, to see my family and never went back, of course. I'm not stupid. <laughs> I only stayed there for two years total. Um, yeah, so that was the story of some of my worst jobs. Anyway, then I um, went back to Auckland for a wee while and decided to move to London. And the rest of my life has been incredible. It's been an amazing uh, 15, 15 years uh, since. And, um, yeah, forever after. <laughs> Bring up our last speaker, Ryan Richards. Um, so, as well as currently working uh, for Cybercom Global part time, um, I'm, I'm also an actor. This is my um, set at the moment. Um, but uh, when I first came out of drama school, um, you know, you sort of have to. You know, as you know, acting is quite quite tough, and you accept all sorts of bizarre little jobs. And um, there was, uh, t- I'll tell you just two quick stories. Um, the first one was, um, I've got, I've got this, this thing, when someone asks me to do something, if it's like five weeks away, I'll sort of look at the, the you know, okay, what is it, yeah, okay, what's the date, the fee, and just sort of always say yes. And then eventually, of course, that, that day comes around. Um, and the, 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 I, I'd never done a job like this before, and just prior to that, I'd done like, um, like three days on Shorten Street, so I was feeling like real positive and mum and dad were proud and it was all, you know, everything was going great guns. And um, 
it was uh, yeah. So um, and so finally, um, my my friend um, uh, texts me about this this job, saying, "Hey, oh, Ryan, just a reminder about this this job tomorrow." Um, and I'm like, "Oh, okay, fantastic." So I looked at the brief, and it was called a, a roving character um, <laughs> a job, and I, I didn't know what that was. Um, and um, and so, but you know, the guy was like, you know, I think it was like three hundred dollars for three hours. I was like, oh man, that's hundred dollars now. Oh my god, there's so much money. Great. Um, so I was really, really excited about it. So then I went down and we had to go to the viaduct, and it was part of the Louis Vuitton Pacific series. Now I don't know if you know what that is. It was like a kind of like a yachting yachting race. People into like yachting. They you know they sit and they watch it on the screens. And earlier that day there had been some entertainment. So there'd been like um, you know stilt walkers and clowns and face painters and lots of fun fun sort of stuff but it was like around like four o'clock and all that sort of stuff had sort of died down in fact there was like nothing else there's no one else there there was like people sitting around chilling out the races were over just having a cold beer in the sun um and so i show up you know i'm okay fantastic you know i'm an actor i can do anything it's all good um and um so i show up and and it was supposed to be so the brief was befuddled navigator they said befuddled i don't know what that was either um and, um, and so I showed up and this lady is like, oh, you're Ryan, are you? Okay, great. Um, and so, okay, so here's your costume. And um, it, to me, it looked like a chef's costume. Uh, it, it was supposed to be like a sailor's costume, but it definitely looked more like a chef's costume. And I was like, oh, now I've got some bad news. Um, the guy who's the captain, who, who knows, you know, where the, where the ship is, um, he's, he's, he's called sick today. Um, and that was like my first warning. Like, why is this guy called sick? Um, and... <laughs> And so, and so that was that was sort of fine. I'm like, okay, it's all right. You know, it's, it's all good. I'm open. I'm open to it. I'm, I'm up for it. Um, and so I'm like, so what's the what? What do I do? You know, what's the what's the thing? She's like, well, you're a befuddled navigator, and um, you've lost. You know, you can't find your ship. Um, and I'm like, okay, uh, cool. And so I'm like, okay, great. So so what do I do? So typically there'd be two of you guys, and you'd go around and you'd you know talk to people and you bounce off each other and stuff like that. But the other guy's sick, so it's it's just you. But just have fun with it. You know, just. <laughs> Just go, go up and, 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 and talk to people, you know, um, and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I put on this, like, ill-fitting, you know, chef's costume. And, um, and so, and like, like I said, everyone had, like, chilled out. The entertainment had finished, you know. People were just rounding up for the day, you know. It was, it was all over. And so I sort of, you know, start walking around, you know. <laughs> this fucking this chef's costume. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, and so, and so I, I was like, so I was sort of like, okay, befuddled navigator, he's lost his ship. So I started sort of walking around like, oh, where is it? Can't, can't find it, you know. And so then I, you know, and so I was like, okay, so I was still like confident at this stage, like, I can totally do this, you know, I just on the street last week, you know, I can do anything. Um, and so then, I, so then I saw like there was a couple of, you know, jokers, you know, sitting at a, at a table. And I'm like, oh, these guys would be good sorts, you know. Go over and so I was like, oh, you know, coming up with these guys. And then one of them, one of them goes, Goes to me and goes, goes, what the fuck are you supposed to be, bro? <laughs> and it was like, and I, was, I was like, you know, I was like so positive at the time. And, I, and he said that, and I was just like, I've lost my ship. <laughs> and I couldn't think of anything else to say. And then, and, and then I, just, I just like turned around and just walked away, like trying to find it. And then, and so that was sort of fine. And it really like threw me. Like I was just like, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> like, no one was interested at all. Like, who the hell was this guy walking around? Like, 
it was fucking horrible. And so I remember, like, I just wanted the ground to, like, suck me in and, like, not be there. Anyway, so, so I just started, like, walking around. And then I found, like, these props that I could use. So there was, like, a, like a, a fishing bag full of plastic fish or whatever. And so I sort of just, like, okay, I'll walk around with that. I'll do a, I'll do a lap with that, you know, and then go back. And then, like, all this, like there wasn't even, like, a, a navigator has, like, a, a periscope or something, doesn't he? Like a, and there wasn't even one of those. It was just a bag of fish. Um... And so then um, the lady came up to me and she's like, oh, hey, Ryan, yeah, really good job, mate, really good job. I think you need to, like, get amongst more, like, you know, talk to people, you know, get involved, like, you know, tell some jokes and stuff like that. And I'm like, I, this was, like, so out of my life. I'd never done anything like this before. And I was thrown about that guy, you know, he said, who the, fu- the fuck are you supposed to be, bro? <laughs> um, so in the end, um, it was, I, I just, like, hated it so much. And um, she like, I'm just going to pop off to the bathroom, you know, blah, 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 and I'll come back and I'll check in on you later. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. And so the second that she walked away fucking bolted I went straight back so like the place got changed into my normal clothes and just ran the fuck out of there and never looked back so that was that was like the number one worst job that that I ever had um, as like an acting job but the other thing I wanted to to share was um, so uh, you know obviously you know acting's not always you know um, you know work isn't always always coming so I had to um, and I remember a buddy of mine um, an actor buddy said oh hey um uh, if you really, if you really stuck, stuck, uh, stuck for money, Ryan, I can get you a job with this company. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what is it? You know, like character stuff. What, what, what is this it's like, oh, no, it's just, um, it's like tele sales, you know, like selling stuff. And I remember at the time I had like a thousand dollars left that, to my name. That was it. And you know, and I said, oh, no, not for me. Thanks, mate. Though you, you go well. Just, no, not, I'm an actor. You know, it's fine. Um, and then I got down to like, you know, two hundred bucks. I was like, so what's the, what's the job again? And um, so then I started working for this company, and it was okay. It was, it, was, it was a company that sold investment research to people who invest in the stock market, and it was just like calling up people saying, hey, how's it going? You're still investing? Um, I'd like to send you a, you know, a free trial of this investment research product. Yeah, sure, here's my email address, and you call them up, what do you think? And then, you know, you sign them up. So it was quite, you know, I, I, I didn't mind. It was quite fun. Um, and we had, like, a fun team. But then the boss of that company got into, like, affiliation with this, this, this guy, and let's just call him John, um, it got an affiliation with a guy called John, who ran a company called Intervest Global. Um, and I know that's quite funny because the company I'm working for at the moment is called Sovereign Global. But, um, but anyway, so, so Intervest, first of all, isn't even a word. Like, <laughs> it's like Invest and like Internet. I don't know. Anyway, so Intervest Global. And th- they, they did a product called Trilogics, which is a, a software program. And it was $38,000. And its investors bought it. And the, the software program apparently um, utilised the cash flow of the New South Wales TAB and picked the winners on the horses. So this is what this thing allegedly did. Okay. Um, actually, even today, I actually just googled um, and in the first, uh, the first, um, like you know how like Google does auto autofill, and it said Intervest Global scam was one of the first like Intervest Global. <laughs> anyway, so it was it was it was it was fine. So at the time, I was like, okay, that's that's fine. So basically, this guy came in. He was this Australian dude, and he was like, um, um, and, and so he explained to us that all we had to do was call people from the current company that I was working for, database, and. Um, followed the script, like this, this sales script, and it was like really full on, and um, and had to qualify them. Okay, so like a qualified lead, which is like they know about the product, they're interested, 
and they have the capital to invest. Okay, and so that's that's all the three things I had to check. And the, but the script was really, really full on. And so we started doing this thing. And because like the script was like so full on, like you know, one of the lines was, "How would you like to make money while you sleep?" You know, and like horrible, horrible, like salesy. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Um, Anyway, so we like started calling, and it was just like, you know, and I'm like, how would you like to make money while you sleep? What the bloody hell are you on about? You know, like, people <laughs> hang, up, hang up on us and stuff, and it was horrible. And so then, um, so we like sort of like changed it to make it more like, you know, a little more laid back, a little bit more Kiwi, you know, a little bit more she'll be right, mate. And um, anyway, so then the guy, this guy, John, his name isn't John, but he came, he came in, and he's like, um, you know, look, I understand you've been um, changing my script. And, um, and I was like, oh, it's just, um, it's just because... Um, you know, it's just a little bit too full on for like our market because he's from Australia and he's selling the product in Australia, this Trilogix horse racing software. And um, and so, and I see, oh, and he's like, "Look, Ryan, you're an actor, right?" And I'm like, "Yes." And he was like, um, "Well, look, you appreciate this. Um, do you think Tom Cruise writes his own lines?" And I'm like, "Oh my fucking god, I can't believe he's fucking doing this." Um, no, no. And what does he use? How does he? Where does he? Where does he learn his lines from? And I'm like script and he's like exactly and so he's anyway so then i said okay well that's fine okay i'll find i'll follow the script i've I've got a moral problem with with the product like um you know this thing that you know the software program that makes money out of the horse racing horse racing industry and he's like okay it's like this ryan um and this is the, the literally the example he used he said um if you're gonna sell a mine, a mine that rapes kids, you don't tell people it's a mine that rapes kids. This is the example that he used. And I'm like, oh my God, what the hell is he talking about? Just like, and I, first of all, I was like, did he say mime or mine? <laughs> and like, both are horrible. But I think because he's from Australia and of course mining industry, I think we meant mine that rapes kids. And um, he's like, you know, you don't say you're going to sell them a mine that rapes kids. You're going to ask them, do you want to make $50,000 a year? And they're going to say, yes, well, it's a mine that rapes kids. And they're going to say, oh, I don't care. And I'm like, no, they won't. No, they won't. They won't say that. So that's why he had structured the script and the way the TAB thing was the last thing that he mentioned. And then the last part of it, so and, and like, it was literally the day after I quit this job, he said, look, Ryan, uh, so he's like, okay, so you're going to, you're going to give, you know, so you, are you happy with that? I'm like, okay, look, I'll try my best. He's like, well, you like this one, Ryan. And the words of Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. I'm like, you're fucking quoting Star Wars. It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking maniac. And so, yeah, I quit that job, and that, 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 that were the two worst jobs I've ever had. Thank you very much to Ryan Richards. The Water Cooler would like to thank The Basement, our producer Sarah Finnegan-Walsh, and New Zealand On Air for making this happen.